Welcome to another episode of Sounds Japanese Canadian to Me with me, Raymond Nakamura. And me, Carolyn Nakagawa. So what are we going to talk about today, Carolyn? Well, I was thinking because we have our exhibit right now on Takao Tanabe and his Japanese-style sumie paintings that we could talk about Japanese Canadians in Japan. The story with Takao Tanabe is that he went to Japan on a Canada Council grant in 1959 for the first time because he was a Canadian-born Nisei. And he said he went because he wanted to learn about the Japanese style of painting, but he also went to find out if he was Japanese. Mm. So he went to Japan and stayed there for a year and a half or two years, and he painted all the beautiful paintings in our exhibit right now. But he decided that, no, he's not Japanese. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but he got some beautiful art out of it, and he learned that about himself and got to visit his family's hometown in mm-hmm. Wakayama. And I think that's a really Japanese-Canadian experience for people who do get the opportunity that they want to go to Japan and figure it out if they've never been there. Because I've been to Japan, and I feel like that's part of what I was doing when I went, was to figure out if I was Japanese. And Raymond, you've been to Japan too, right? Yeah, that's right. And when you're here and you don't know, there's still sort of this expectation that you should know. Yeah. You know, like people will ask you about Japanese culture, even if you're yeah. born here. And you'll be like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So at least you can kind of, uh, I think if you've gone, then you sort of know where to draw the line. Yeah. Um, I think it's at least interesting to know know what you don't know or what is or isn't the case. Yeah, I think that's a, a huge thing for Japanese Canadians is to learn what you don't know. I like that way of saying it. But it's it's been really different throughout the whole experience of being Japanese Canadian, right? Because before the war, when, you know, their Issei immigrant parents with their Nisei Canadian-born children, a lot of the parents would register their children's birth with their home village in Japan. So, and those children would technically be dual citizens of Japan and Canada. So it's kind of complicated Mm -hmm. because the Japanese citizenship laws would say, if your parents are Japanese, then you're Japanese. Uh But if Canadian citizenship law said, if you're born in Canada, then you're Canadian. That's an interesting distinction, isn't it? That the, I mean, the concept of you being part of your family being a very Japanese idea, whereas the Canadian thing, the emphasis on the individual of where your particular existence is. And I think that that, that theme maybe is representative of the experiences that people have. Oh, definitely. Yeah, you're right. It is more individualistic to think of birth versus blood and family lines. So technically, these Nisei were dual citizens. A lot of them, up to a certain point, were automatically both Japanese citizens in Japan and Canadian citizens in Canada. But at the time, that wasn't legally recognized. You weren't allowed to have two citizenships, but Mm. they technically did. So it was basically just like, when you're in Japan... Japan owns you, (laughs) and when you're in Canada, Canada owns you, and it was kind of contradictory, and that led to some complications, or at least some complicated ways of looking at the situation when those Canadian citizens were being forcibly relocated Mm -hmm. there in the Mm -hmm. 40s. They changed the law in 1924 so that you wouldn't automatically get Japanese citizenship by being born to Japanese parents. You had to be registered, but still most That was in Japan. Yeah, Japan did change the laws, but most of the parents still would actually register their children. So by 1934, about 86% of them were dual citizens registered in Japan, even if they had never been there. That's interesting because uh, I wonder if that affected my my dad's family Yeah. uh, when you say that time period. Because my older aunts and uncles, he he came from a family of eight, Mm -hmm. and uh, my oldest uncle was born around 1910 or so. Mm -hmm. And he and two other aunts were sent to Japan. It seems more like 
a childcare arrangement, but also they were uh, educated in, in Japan. And so they spoke with a Japanese accent after when I knew them in, in Canada. Uh, whereas my dad was born after that date, and he always stayed in Canada the whole time. So I don't know whether the, the laws had anything to do with that or whether just realistically, if they had older kids looking after the younger ones and they didn't need that childcare format or whether they realized they were going to stay in Canada rather than planning to go back. Yeah, it might be. Um, I didn't think about like the change in the laws affecting that because that was a really common practice at the time, right? My grandmother and her sister were sent to Japan when my grandmother was about 12 and they were educated sort of like a finishing school education mm -hmm. in Japan before the war. And my grandfather was actually born in Japan, but I think his parents were already immigrated to Canada. So it was sort of like that similar arrangement mm -hmm. of the, the Kikanise. So that's the group of... Canadian-born children who would be sent back to Japan like your aunts and uncles and they would be raised by often their grandparents or other family members and receive some kind of Japanese education. One of the tricky things in the case of my aunt was they were taken care of by I guess a sister of what would have been my grandfather and she didn't have any kids at the time, mm -hmm. so effectively adopted them and gave right. them her family name after being married. Yeah. That's also a fairly common practice. But so then when they came back to Canada, they didn't have the papers for them because their name had changed in the interim. Right. And so they were kind of stuck in immigration for some period of time until they got it sorted out wow. that they had family here. So, yeah, that was a really common practice. And even for Nisei, who grew up here, and I think it's really interesting, though, that it seems like the most common thing was that the oldest child or, like, the oldest two children would go, would be sent and educated in Japan. So they would be the ones that had the burden of sort of carrying on the tradition mm. and the family. And I think maybe it might have been, like you said, uh, a childcare thing where, like, the parents were more able to care for their children themselves mm -hmm. as they got, you know, more comfortable later on right. with the younger children. But also, even for the children themselves, they would come back to Canada after they reached a certain age, and it varies depending on the family, with the knowledge of Japanese customs and language and etiquette. And that's what they needed to survive because they weren't employable. Even the ones who spoke English without an accent were not employable in the wider Canadian community due to racism. And the opportunities they had were within the Japanese Canadian community to work there and like work for shops there and things like that. So they would need the Japanese language for that. Speaking English wasn't really a good asset in a mm -hmm. lot of cases. Mm -hmm. At that time. Yeah. It, it seems like there were uh, some cases, I was listening to some of the interviews from the Sedai website that the project that was set up in, in Toronto mm -hmm. of people who had been to Japan before the war. And the sense I got, there was a variety of responses to it, but Japan wasn't doing very well even before the war. Mm -hmm. But it depended on, on the circumstances of their family. So in one case, one fellow, he had been brought up more in a Japanese household. So he felt comfortable with Japanese society and Japanese culture. And he had relatives who were able to give him a job. So even mm -hmm. though he wasn't very good at school, he said, he was able to have a job and, and it seemed like he would have prospects there. Whereas another person spoke about how they were living in a country village and they were very poor and they had to just have miso shiru and yams. That was breakfast, lunch and dinner, sort of the circumstances. Mm -hmm. And it was close to the war that she was there. And I guess Japan was already involved in, in military action. And she would, as a high school student, have to be helping out the uh, families of soldiers in their uh, farms and things like that. And they'd have to be waving flags and, and doing a lot of this nationalistic Japanese related things. So it, it made this person uncomfortable at the time. Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of people report 
that when they, if they visited Japan in the 30s, that there was this very prominent wave of nationalism that a lot of them felt uncomfortable with. My grandma would have been there and gone back in 38, I think, or maybe 39, so she must have experienced that, but she never talked to me about that period of her life, so I kind of wonder. Mm-hmm. But I think it's not about where you're born, whether or not you feel Japanese, right? Because I think that my grandma was educated there as a teenager, but her, her sister was a little younger than her when they went and just stayed there. So she was born in Canada, but to this day she lives in Japan and her family is there and she married there. So for some Nisei, they went back and they just became Japanese. Right. And there's different levels of conflict within that process and transition, depending on the circumstances. And because they stay there, it's hard for us in Canada to know that side of the story. Yes, there's and, not as much about it. Right. So we're sort of getting the stories of the people who went and then came back. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, they're self-selecting because they came back because they didn't like it there. That's, so yeah. we have a slightly biased view of what it was like. Yeah, there are a few interviews that were conducted in Japan that have sort of made it back and been translated, but there's not as many for sure. Mm -hmm. In 1935, I think it was the BC government, although it's not completely clear from my source, some government body conducted a survey in 1935 of, I don't know if it was exclusively Nisei, Japanese Canadians or not, but of about 2,600 Nisei, 403 of them, or 14.9%, said they were planning on eventually settling in Japan. And these are Japanese Canadians born in Canada. And most of them said it was because of social and occupational difficulties, but there are other reasons too, like some of them would inherit land there or because they knew their parents would want them to go back. So that's about 15%, but those of them who did go to Japan, they faced a lot of discrimination too. They were discriminated against in Canada because of their race, and then in Japan they were kind of looked at strangely for being mm -hmm. sort of westernized, very difficult for them. Especially for women, the Nisei women would be much more outspoken than mm. was expected of a proper Japanese right. lady, which is probably why my grandma had to go to finishing school in Japan, so she would Straighten have, you know, decent <laughs> marriage prospects. But of course, it was an even more difficult situation when Canada declared war on Japan. Mm -hmm. There was war, of course, in Japan long before that, but after December 1941, when there were 1,500 Canadian-born Nisei living in Japan, and most of them were small children and they couldn't get back. There was not even any mail going through. You couldn't even find out if those relatives were alive. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of interesting stories from that period of time. I found a story of one woman who was a Nisei woman named Sumi Mori, and she was visiting relatives in Japan at the time of Pearl Harbor. She was pregnant, she gave birth, and was told eventually that she could come back to Canada because she was a Canadian citizen, but her daughter was not a Canadian citizen because she was born in Japan. So that was the Canadian rule? The Canadian rule was that Sumimori could come back, but mm. her daughter, who was, you know, like seven years old, right. was not allowed to come with her. So she decided to stay because she didn't want to abandon right. her child in right. Japan, even though she was technically allowed back, which is kind of horrible. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I thought the story of Shinobu Higashi was really interesting. He was the founding editor of The New Canadian, uh -huh. but he got a job working for an English-language newspaper in Manchuria in the 30s. 
So he mm-hmm. didn't actually go to Japan technically. I think he went through Japan. Yeah, oh, working for Japan. Working for a Japanese-run newspaper right. because that was his only way to pursue a career as a journalist. None of the uh-huh. Canadian papers would right. hire him, even though right. he was a UBC English grad. So he went to Manchuria, and he was threatened by the Japanese thought police because they spied on his like private gatherings in his home and mm. told him that he didn't have enough Yamato Damashi, the mm. sort of Japanese warrior spirit, uh, threatened him. And even worse is he actually got called into Japanese military service because he was actually born in Japan and immigrated to Canada at the age of two. So mm-hmm. he was very much like a Nisei, but a Japanese citizen and not a Canadian citizen, unlike many of the Nisei dual citizens. And he had a lot of difficulties because he didn't speak Japanese very well. And he had to, he was supposed to memorize this emperor's rescript for the armed forces, mm. sort of a doctrine thing, and he couldn't memorize it properly and was beaten. But he was uh, just charged due to a heart problem. But that didn't stop the Soviet troops from rounding him up as a prisoner of war in 1945. And he wrote a book about that called Four Years in Hell, I think. Oh, that one. Have you heard of that? Yeah, I just heard of it, uh, but I haven't read it. Yeah, apparently he had to write it under a pseudonym because it was still during the Cold War. Oh, and oh, oh. He was not supposed to talk about his experiences. And I'm, he eventually was released and got out and... Wow wrote about it but yeah as you look into this it becomes more complicated because so many individual stories are are so varied it's hard to generalize about the experience yeah because i think he did stay in japan after he got out of the soviet union and there were a lot of people who were in japan during the war for different reasons Mm -hmm. quite a few of them got conscripted into the army if they were men Right, even, they didn't really have a the choice. Canadian-born right? ones, mm-hmm. because if they were registered under their families, registered, right? Yeah, they already they had that. Scriptable. So uh-huh. actually, there's Kanao Inoue was from Haney, and he was born in Haney and graduated from Van Tech High School. But because he was registered with his family in Japan as well, and he was in Japan during the war, he was eventually conscripted into the Japanese army and was convicted of war crimes in Hong Kong because he was involved in some torture of prisoners of war. So by, I Canadians. guess by the British. I think so, yeah. It's definitely the Allied forces. Yeah. The report said that Canadians felt like he was especially mean to them. Mm. And he said that he was getting back at them for the way that he had been treated mm. in Canada. Mm. Mm. But then he kind of switched it at the trial. He claimed that he had been much better treated in Canada than in Japan, where he was bullied for being a Nisei and not fitting in and being sort of uh-huh. born in that way. And that he liked Canada. So I'm not sure what's true. Oh, yeah, right. But the most ironic part of that is that after he got convicted of being involved in torture, and he actually got a, a surprisingly harsh sentence, he got the death sentence. Mm-hmm. Which was surprisingly harsh because he was apparently only ever assisting his Japanese overseer, who he claimed he was just following orders. Mm-hmm. And the guy who was leading the tortures was never actually tried mm-hmm. for war crimes, but he was convicted and given the death sentence. But after that, he was also convicted of treason against the British Empire because he was considered a Canadian citizen and a British subject by Canadian and British law. So he was getting it both ways. Yeah, even though he was conscripted into the army in Japan because he was considered a Japanese citizen. Mm-hmm. So he got a double death sentence and was hung in 1947. Mm, he couldn't win. Yeah. But, of course, the next big wave of Japanese Canadians going to Japan was after the war when the Japanese Canadians in Canada were told that they should move either east of the Rockies or go, quote-unquote, back to Japan. I think this is the most definitive illustration of the racism that was motivating what was going on. Because, I mean, the war is over, 
and then they're still not allowed to return to British Columbia, and, and the politicians are just don't want them there. So this whole process seems to be rooted in motivations that are indefensible. I mean, during the war, you're against them, and for whatever reasons, they could have that argument. But afterward, it seemed like it was motivated more explicitly. Yeah, they kind of ran out of excuses, right? And most of these people had obeyed all the orders from the government and were being rewarded by telling, saying, "You still can't go back home. It's not over. Even when the war is over, the racism wasn't over." Right. So a lot of people did sign and say that they would. The term that the government used was repatriate to Japan mm-hmm. and renounce their British citizenship or Canadian slash British citizenship if they mm-hmm. had it. Mm-hmm. There's around ten thousand that signed up. Right? Yeah, initially it was over ten thousand, but mm-hmm. it was sort of a fear motivated thing, and a lot of them renounced that and tried to get out of it. And there was a big panic about that as well because a lot of them signed because they thought that they were going to get kicked out of the camps, mm-hmm. like immediately. And have no, and have no if they didn't sign to go to Japan. There were a lot of rumors yes. flying around and they were sort of, you know, used to the government doing all these scary things to them with no reason. Right, yeah. So it was hard for them to sort of know what to believe. Yeah. Yeah. And they so they had to make a declaration mm-hmm. before the end of the war, right? Yeah, this was so I think e- in early even, 1945. So even before they were being sent off, some of them had to make that declaration before it was actually put into yeah. practice. And then when the war did end and it was sort of imminent, a lot of them took it back and a lot of them revoked it before then too. Mm-hmm. So about 4,000 actually did go to Japan. And many of them were children and didn't have any choice. They were mm-hmm. under 16. Right. They were their parents' dependents and their parents often felt like either they were completely disillusioned by the government or they just couldn't start over again in Canada. At least in Japan, they had some family. Some people said, especially fishing families, that they could not be near the right, coast. Right, right. There'd be no point in going east. Yeah. And no over half the repatriates or exiles were Canadian-born. So roughly 2,000 Canadian-born citizens were deported to Japan. And a third of the people who went were dependents who had no choice and went because they had to go with their family. And I think even children who were older than that who went with their parents, many of them said they went because they felt obligated to stay with their parents sure, and take yeah, care of them, right. especially oldest siblings or uh-huh. only children. Even though they weren't legally obligated to stay with their parents, they knew that their parents couldn't resettle in Canada, that they needed to go back, and that they were responsible for taking care of them or helping take care of the younger children. So there were the uh, three ships, the Marine Angel that left in May 31st of 1946, the General M.C. Miggs that left in June 16th and then also August 2nd, and the Marine Falcon that left in October 2nd and December 24th. That would have been a nice Christmas, I guess. So the MiGs, anyway, was a converted American troop ship. One account said that it takes about 14 days for them to get across, being in a boat. Mm-hmm. And when they arrived, that was when many of them discovered the fate of their relatives who had been stuck in mm-hmm. Japan during the mm-hmm. war. Because like I said, there was no way to get a letter through. Mm-hmm. So that some of them came expecting to find their, you know, their long-lost sister or whatever, and only found out that they died. Right. And uh, one account by Kei Kishiben, one of the Nikkei Images issues, talked about landing in Uraga near Kamakura. So there was this big building that they were all put in, so they didn't have any privacy, I guess, similar mm-hmm. to circumstances described in Hastings Park. So. Yeah, there is a parallel there. Yeah, and uh, he mentioned a case of where they were handing out these 
soy biscuits that didn't have much taste. And so the mm-hmm. kids from Canada spat them out because they were used to things that had sugar in them, I mm-hmm. guess. So the Japanese staff were shocked that they would be so ungrateful. But soon enough, they were hungry enough that uh, they started eating them as well. Yeah, I read a story about one family where the mother actually saved the biscuits that the kids refused. And mm. then a couple weeks later, they were all oh, desperate for the, the she... exact same biscuits, yeah. which were now, now like even yeah, staler. Yeah, right. Yeah, terrible stories of yeah one girl was 12 years old when her family went and she and her sister drew pictures of food and pretended to eat it because the food storage was so bad that that was their way of coping with it and there's terrible stories about the food it was all moldy or like covered in bugs and the soup Mm, was mm. made with dirty brackish water Mm. and they were even getting better food than most of the people who are just already in japan but the food storage was so dire Nowadays, with uh, edible inks, you can make pictures and then eat, eat, eat the paper. I, I heard of this chef who did that. But oh, really? Anyway. Yeah. And they were among some six million people who were entering Japan after the war, most of them repatriates who were soldiers of some kind. But these Canadian deportees were unusual because they had families that had babies who did milk. Most of the other people were... Mm-hmm from military mm, right. groups. So their so the, needs were different. And so the, more vulnerable. the Japanese who were there obviously didn't appreciate even more people coming to the country. No, I don't think so. So there's a lot of bad feelings that way. Yeah. And the relatives, they were going to visit relatives and the relatives were already starving and didn't have any place for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the only thing they had to eat was potatoes. As an extreme example, one story that I heard about was of a a girl, a Nisei girl who was at school. Mm -hmm. And then when one of the Japanese mothers heard that she was from Canada, chased her with a butcher knife. Oh uh, my goodness. You know, basically planning to kill him because of the war and and blaming her for all the troubles. Yeah, there's quite a few stories actually of kids being bullied in school. And like there's a sense that that was even worse than it would have been because of sort of lingering Japanese nationalism after the war. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. But there was one exile, uh, Lloyd Kumagai. He had some difficulty because he wasn't a Japanese citizen, and that meant that he wasn't allowed to attend public school. He was eventually registered under his brother-in-law's family register and was able to go to school. And he was several grades behind, as many of the exiles who did get to go to school were. So he was always teased and made fun of. But he was able to bond with his classmates because he taught them baseball. Hmm. So another moment of the Asahi legacy, because the thing is that they didn't have TV. Mm -hmm. No one had TV, so they couldn't learn baseball from TV. And it was something that had been forgotten. They stopped doing it during the war because it was a Western practice, even though it had been very popular in Japan beforehand. They stopped, you know, doing anything that was Western. And he was the one who had sort of the secrets of how to play this fun game. And then he became more popular. And you don't need a lot of equipment for it. Yeah, I guess that you can probably make do with something for a bat. So they weren't allowed to return to Canada until 1949, and people couldn't go back to the coast until then Mm -hmm. either. So even though technically then they were allowed to return, it was difficult because they wouldn't have had much money. Yeah, and it sounds like several people actually signed up to serve with the Canadian Army in the Korean War mm-hmm. in you know the early 50s because otherwise they wouldn't have any money for the passage home. Mm-hmm. Have you seen that uh, film Minoru? No, I haven't. Uh, it's sort of partly animated, and it recounts the story of the filmmaker's father who basically did that so he had gone to Japan and then joined the Canadian Army as a way to get back to Canada right. and, and then they reestablished themselves here yeah 
There was one story I thought was really neat. Um, many of the exiles from Canada, when they got to Japan, they got jobs with the U.S. occupied forces, mm, the, right. the U.S. occupation forces, uh-huh. because they could speak English. Yes. And that was really the only thing they had going for them, especially if they weren't able to get into school in Japan and have right. any Japanese education. Right. So that actually did them well because the occupied forces paid pretty well yes. relative to other jobs in Japan at the time. Things were really hard. Yes. There was one guy, George Tsuruda, who was able to get back his Canadian citizenship because if they had signed to go to Japan, they uh-huh. technically renounced their Canadian citizenship. But in 1949, he was able to get it back after he like signed a declaration that affirmed that he had never voted in a Japanese election, he had never had tuberculosis, and he was not a member of the Communist Party. Uh-huh. So you can see that you know, early yes. Cold War yeah. fear in the requirements there. But he was able to get his Canadian citizenship back. And he was working for the U.S. forces. And he was paid pretty well. But even so, the passage back to Canada would have cost him almost a year's worth of wages. Uh-huh. And what happened was his U.S. soldier friends got together a pool of money and some clothes and supplies and gave it to him so that he could go back to Canada. Wow. Yeah. It seems like even non-military jobs, there were other foreign companies that were setting up. And so that the Nisei who were able to speak both languages were in a better circumstance than Issei, who, if they only spoke Japanese, weren't able to get positions, both because they had come from Canada and because they didn't have this language skill. So a lot of them ended up being worse off, even though they thought that they were going to have a better chance going to Japan. Yeah. Well, and many of the Issei, too, were older by that yeah, time, sure. and they had been broken down right. health-wise, yes. even, as well as spiritually and sure. mentally from the experience of internment. Yes. But there aren't any exact figures on how many of those 4,000 exiles actually ended up returning to Canada eventually, but mm-hmm. it seems like the estimate is that around half of them, at some point, came back to Canada, sometimes mm-hmm. with families, if they had married Japanese people and had children, sometimes they went back at the soonest opportunity. Mm-hmm. But even some of them who stayed in Japan felt like they were never Japanese. Mm-hmm. One other thing I wanted to mention was that the Japanese-Canadian exiles who stayed in Japan were still eligible for redress payments. Oh, yes, right. So after that settlement was signed, I think in 89, they sent a delegation from Canada to sort of track those people down. The ones who were still alive. Yeah, the ones who were still alive. So it ended up being that... 1,123 Japanese residents received their individual redress payment compensation, Hmm. along with the people who were living in Canada who got it. And that was actually a sort of renaissance for the Japanese-Canadian expatriates in Japan, because Hmm. they sort of like revived their community to get those connections and tell people how to get their money. Right. And that became... A common experience for them. Yeah. And so that was... They formed like their own association because of that. Uh Uh-huh. Although it looks like that kind of tapered off because a lot of them, even after then, went back to Canada. Oh. Do you remember the first time you went to Japan? I was uh, nine years old. Uh Uh-huh. And it was actually my dad's first time going to Japan. I don't remember a lot about that trip, actually, because I was so much younger. But, I mean, I didn't speak any Japanese. So it was just a really, like, cool, different place. And we did go to my family's home village in Wakayama and meet my grandma's sister Mm -hmm. for the first time. And she was so nice and lovely. And we got to see our family tombstone. So that was amazing. But I think to have that than, sense of connection to a place. Yeah, but I think other than that, I didn't otherwise feel like I was you were seeing so anything little, yeah. familiar or that I knew about 
about beforehand. There was a lot of things called Nakagawa. Mm-hmm. And so we took pictures of like train station signs. Yeah, like right, that. right, right. <laughs> and and here out. you're used to not seeing it very yeah. often. Actually, when I lived in Japan and I was a foreign exchange student, I lived in uh, the street name was Nakagawa. Mm-hmm. Oh, so that was cool. <laughs> Did you choose that on purpose? No. It was oh, just a just, lucky oh, coincidence. Thought... What about you? What was your experience like? Well, it's interesting because there are sort of some parallels in that I went with my family. I was in high school at the time, mm-hmm. and we went as part of a group from the Toronto Japanese Language School. Mm-hmm. And my mom had made us go on Saturday mornings to Japanese school, even though I never passed any tests while I went to the school. We sort of <laughs> went through the motions. So I wasn't by any means uh, competent in it, but I was part of this group. And so we went to see the sites and One of the things I remember was going to the Canadian consulate and there was a Caucasian representative there Mm -hmm. who spoke to us in half an hour in Japanese and I didn't understand anything he was talking about. So it was this weird experience of maybe this thing we talk about of expectation of people expecting you to know stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, But the other part that was interesting was to meet my grandfather's family. He didn't come with us on the trip. He had passed away by then, but he was in our house when I was younger and his brothers and sisters had this family resemblance. So to see someone who looked like him was a very striking experience. I think. For me, when I, when I went there as an exchange student, even though I had a Japanese last name, I think I was a lot more Japanese than I expected me to be. Mm. They said, oh, you're a Canadian. It was the first time that anyone had just said that to me. Uh-huh. Like, you're a Canadian. Uh-huh. But they were so impressed that I ate all their food uh-huh. that I would right. eat fish. Oh, uh, yeah. I love fish. <laughs> yeah. Um, or rice. Yeah, I love rice. <laughs> yeah, so I ate, I ate miso shiru three yeah. times a day, uh-huh. and it was great, and I loved it. But I remember one of my classmates was talking to me, and I had been there a while. I was much closer to going home than I was to actually arriving. She said, Oh, Nakagawa-san, did you have culture shock? And I was like, oh yeah, I guess so. I mean, I guess I did. And she's like, oh yeah, I was just realizing this. That you must think it's so weird to, that you have to eat like this fish. And I'm like, well, that's actually the only thing that wasn't a culture shock uh-huh. the was food. the food because I grew up with that. Uh-huh. There was definitely like more different kinds of fish and more different kinds of like right. beans right. and things like but that. But the idea but... of... No, I was so happy. I was so well fed in Japan. Uh huh. That's nice. Not like the people who went there in the 40s. That's right. Yeah, such a different experience now, the idea of going to Japan. And earlier on, when I went there, Japan was in its ascendancy in terms of economically, it was a world power, really. Mm. And it was almost a fashionable thing to be associated with Japanese things. Mm. So to make that connection, to have that personal connection was an interesting one. I remember the first time we went, so that was in 1980, when the video games that they had there, I hadn't seen in Canada. So this idea of arcades (laughs) and stuff like that, Space Invaders in cafes and things, and we could go to the electronic stores and get stuff that wasn't available in Canada, those sort of things, you know, them being at the forefront of electronics was sort of a, a trendy, a fashionable kind of thing. Cool. Then later, in 1982, I was part of a Japanese Canadian hockey team that went, mm-hmm. a Sunsei hockey team. So most of them, I think almost all of them had never been to Japan before, and, mm-hmm. and generally they didn't speak any Japanese. It happened to correspond with my first year in university, and I took undergrad Japanese, so I knew some mm-hmm. Japanese, which made me sort of the the one-eyed man in the kingdom of the blind (laughs) scenario. And so for them, the food thing, some of them was an issue. So they'd always be looking for a McDonald's in Japan or or a pizza place or something. But, you know, the Canadian thing is sort of being a hockey player. It's sort of a a quintessentially Canadian experience. But then to see it in Japan, how it manifested itself. In some places, it was a very minor sport. Mm -hmm. So they didn't have a real Zamboni. They had 
people with a big oil drum with hot water and rags that they dragged mm -hmm. across the ice. Or they didn't have actual dressing rooms. We had to dress in our hotel and then walk over <laughs> to the rink oh. and then put the stuff on. Uh, so in some places it was like that. In other places, they were more keen on hockey and we got whipped because they were semi-professionals working, wow. playing for companies. So that was kind of an interesting angle. It's interesting because you mentioned... Um being able to speak like a little bit of Japanese. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that a lot of Nikkei who go to Japan now find is that people expect them to know Japanese. Mm. When I went as a child with my parents, I found like if I went anywhere with my dad, they speak to us in Japanese. If I mm -hmm. went anywhere with my mom, it was fine because I'd look at her and be like, tourists. Mm -hmm. And even some people who were born in Japan, like one of my dad's very good friends was born in Japan, immigrated at the age of five. He goes back and speaks Japanese like a five-year-old. Oh, right, right. <laughs> well, I think my parents noticed something along those lines in that they learned their Japanese from their parents yeah. um, close to 100 years ago. Yeah. So there are certain expressions that are sort of fossilized in a sense that they would use. Or yeah. similarly, maybe they were used to speaking as children to their mm -hmm. parents. And so they had this sort of funny reaction. Yeah. That whole question of assumption, in a way, if you look like a local person, then they're not going to come up to. Whereas when I went to study marine biology there, there were some other foreign students from Europe and so on. Mm -hmm. So especially in a smaller place, people will just randomly come up and talk to them, you know, as, as foreigners. Mm, like you try to talk um, to them in English. Yeah, to practice their English or something. But th that wouldn't happen in my case. But the sense that I got was because my Japanese wasn't perfect, they would think that I was sort of mentally challenged in some right. way that yeah. there was something wrong with me as a Japanese right. person. So that was kind of an interesting way to look at it. There was one student at the lab where I was at who was Japanese but albino. Mm. So he was blonde and very pale. And I remember being taunted by some kids. Mm -hmm. He and I worked together. And he would yell at them in Japanese and then I yelled at them in English. And then they, <laughs> that totally confused them. <laughs> as to what was going on. Great tactic. Yeah, so yeah. I think it's an interesting experience. It's almost like a, a sociological experiment to put yourself in a different kind of context and see. Yeah, I mean, when I was there on exchange, they didn't usually have that same expectation that I would know Japanese. Mm. Even people who looked at me and didn't know that I was an exchange student mm -hmm. would think that I was maybe um, from Brazil. And Oh, yeah. Because there's a large mm. Brazilian Nikkei community yes. in the area that I was studying. Oh. And they would be the mixed race people. Right. In that area. Right, right, right. And I guess there were some complicated feelings about them coming to Japan and stuff. Yeah, some people were kind of mean to me because of that. They were never mean to me when they knew I was from Canada. Yeah. But if they thought I was from Brazil, some of them were actually quite mean. Yeah. That idea of the differences between Canada and Japan can be informative to see where you have the echoes of the original Japanese culture. And then, because of course Japan has evolved since the time of the Issei, so that some practice, customs, attitudes have changed and other ones have been sort of fossilized. Yeah, well, there's a very small number of Japanese words that I grew up knowing and using in my family. My dad doesn't speak Japanese, none of his siblings speak it. But we would say, you know, shoyu, mm -hmm. uh, ohashi, and one of the other words we had was yancha. Mm -hmm. But I always thought it was nyancha, like with an N at the front. Oh! <laughs> Japan. <laughs> That's cute. Yeah. You know this word? <laughs> they didn't know it, but it was Yancha. And I told my mom that she didn't know, my dad didn't know. They all thought it was Yancha. Ah. So we've been getting it wrong this whole time. So it might have been the accent or something. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. So I that's like a troublemaker. So you heard that yeah, a lot. Like an, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So. That's a little Yancha. There's yeah. a certain Yancha age. Mm -hmm. So what did you get from going to Japan? 
like Takao Tanabe, I discovered that I am not Japanese. Mm-hmm. I discovered that I'm Canadian. Uh-huh. Culturally, there are just so many things that I had no idea was going on. Yes. And even like years later, I'll sometimes wake up in the middle of the night and be like, oh, something Japanese was happening there uh-huh. <laughs> that I did not notice or process mm. at the time. What about you? Well, I felt that I was kind of more in between that because other people who were foreigners, maybe not Canadian or so forth, were further away than I was from understanding what was going on. Mm-hmm. So that even though I wasn't Japanese, I was at least more familiar with some of the things that were going on yeah. than other people. I mean, just even the food thing for some yeah. people, that can be a big hurdle. So that can make a difference in terms of how you feel about it. And in my case, if you look like a Japanese person, they seem to be more comfortable in certain ways. Like mm-hmm. they, they don't feel like there's the thing of treating a, a foreigner in a certain way versus mm-hmm. someone who is from there. So you can kind of observe behaviors that are maybe a little bit different mm-hmm. than if you're conspicuously from yeah. somewhere. And also sometimes like I'll realize this weird thing that my dad is doing that he doesn't realize Mm. is like a really Japanese thing. I'm like, oh, that's because he's Japanese. (laughs) I mean, he's a sensei and he doesn't know very much about the culture even, but like just like things that trickle down from his parents. Uh Every so often in the middle of the night, I'll be like, (laughs) that's because he's Japanese. (laughs) So I, I think it's an interesting experience, as you say. Obviously, everyone's identity is made up of so many different elements. Mm-hmm. Um, but to have a, a stronger familiarity with the kind of source, it, it's sort of interesting to have that. Yeah, I was talking to a friend about that, and she said that when she was in Japan, that she recognized all these things that her grandparents did, but never explained why. Mm. Like traditions about like Obon or Mochizuki. Mm-hmm. And now she actually knew the reason behind it, which I think is really common. I know that my grandparents were Buddhist and my dad sort of like saw that but never understood why any of it was happening. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's interesting to retrace that connection. Mm-hmm. But it would have been really different 60, 70 years ago when yes. the connection was already there. Yeah, and sometimes you didn't have a choice about making that. Yeah, and you didn't get to go back to Canada. Mm-hmm. We could talk about this all day, probably. We could talk about this for a week. (laughs) (laughs) But we'll leave it there. Yeah. And encourage the listeners to go to Japan if you haven't been. Yeah, whether you're in UK or not. That's right. You should do it as part of the experience of war.